after an unexpected start to Dharma practice in the mid-70s, I undertook retreats regularly for about 10 years. And even at the end of 10 years, I was a slow learner. But I did get motivated and aroused to uh, really practice more urgently, I think, and decided to go to Burma. When I went to Burma, it was the first time I'd been out of the country. I was kind of a parochial, local New England boy, and not a world traveler at all. And so I got to Rangoon, and, well, it was a really foreign place. <laughs> I mean, it was, everything was completely new and different, and I didn't feel entirely safe. Um, it was different food, different climate, different conversation, different language, different culture, different everything, different clothes. So I was a little unnerved, but I didn't, I didn't waste any time being a tourist. I went right to the meditation center, which was more different. But it was somewhat familiar because of the meditation center, and I was really determined. I was really on fire to, to practice. So I just settled in. Well, it was a busy place. I mean, it was not a quiet, serene, uh, you know, remote forest meditation center at all. It's in Rangoon, and it's a lot of concrete buildings, and I just happened to be there. I happened to arrive the first or second weekend of December when they have an annual festival. Well, when they have an annual festival, it's a festival in honor of the founder of the retreat center, Mahasi Sayadaw. And because he was so popular and so successful at teaching his method of meditation, there were <coughs> over 400 Mahasi centers throughout Burma. And they all had an elder monk or a more experienced monk teaching there. And during this festival, because he had passed away some years before, they all came to Rangoon and they all brought a whole retinue of attendants and devotees and there was just an influx of, well, hundreds of monks and nuns, thousands of devotees, and it was just a packed place. I I didn't know it otherwise, I just thought, well, this is the way it is all the time. And it just... <laughs> you know, and during this time, there's so much celebration, really. It's a Dharma celebration. They have Dharma talks broadcast over the loudspeaker in the center from 5 in the morning till 11 at night. In Burmese. <laughs> Uh, or at least I didn't have to, at least I didn't have to agree or disagree with what I heard. <laughs> but I was feeling really out of place, and I was feeling a little alienated. I was feeling very lonely, and I was culture shock, really <laughs> culture shock. But there was one thing that happened early on in my stay there that really <coughs> showed me 
a different way to be there. At this center, there was a sitting before breakfast. So at four o'clock, I would go to the sitting uh, in the meditation meditation hall and sit for an hour. And then I would get up and come out. And I would stand beside the cottage of my teacher, Saito Bandita, and wait for the call to, to go to to go to breakfast. But at that time, there was a sitting for everyone in the center. And so the Burmese women and men do their chanting at the end of that sitting before they go to breakfast. So I'd be standing in the beside the building waiting for the breakfast call. And the women's hall up at the top of the hill next to the dining room they would start their chant. And they would chant the refuges, the precepts, and a little bit of metta, loving-kindness. And it would only take, you know, a few minutes, five minutes or something. But there were like twelve to 1,500 women in this meditation hall. So Burmese women are very, very devout. They are very sincere. They're really into their practice, and they're loud. And so you got twelve, fifteen hundred women chanting with all their heart the refuges, the precepts, and metta. <clears throat> and they would get started, and they'd be, you know, thirty seconds into their chant, and then there was another meditation hall just down the hill, another women's meditation hall just down the hill, halfway, and it was a two-story meditation hall, five hundred on each floor, women, all women, and one floor would start, and then another floor would start. So you got you know, a couple thousand women or more, chanting a little bit out of sync, these are the refugees' precepts. It was hair-raising. I mean, it was, it was just like, really intense. And across from that hall was the men's hall, and the, the Burmese men's. And they would chant similarly, starting sometime after the women. And then a little further down, beyond where I was, there was another meditation hall for another 800 to 1,000 monks, well, they didn't chant the same chant. They did a different kind of chant, monks. So at five o'clock in the morning, you got two, three, four thousand people, <laughs> super devotional, loud, chanting. It was just amazing. I mean, you, you just, it was just amazing. And I realized that they were expressing their confidence, their devotion, their appreciation, their gratitude, their aspiration, the same as I had. Because I was there with the same devotion and confidence and inspiration, but not quite that same heartfeltness. And But somehow it helped me to realize that what they were doing here and expressing through their chanting was what I was doing there. And I realized how timeless the taking of the refuges and the precepts and the practice really is. And that across 25 centuries and many different cultures, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of beings, every day, 
take these refuges and precepts and try to practice the Dharma. And I was there to do the same thing. And it was not... I was, I was not a foreigner. They were not different. We were... We had our hearts all in the same place. And it really made me feel welcome, at home, at ease, connected, not so alienated, not lonely. Just... I fell into place. And it was a great... Uh, support and I think an acknowledgement of the way they chant how profound and meaningful significant essential the Dharma is in their life when we began when we began this retreat we also started the formality of the retreat by chanting the refuges and precepts and we have managed to chant the refuges and precepts every day at the beginning of the day just as a way of I like to think of it as um, chanting the refuges is kind of acknowledging our aspiration and the refuges is kind of recommitting to our intention and sincerity in being here but sometimes in the routine of a retreat like this the chanting of the refuges and precepts can become a kind of a, you know, kind of a, a just a ritual, um, can be meaningless. It can be just, you know, hocus pocus, foreign language, doesn't, it doesn't become a heart practice. I suppose I could have given this talk at the beginning of the retreat, kind of, <laughs> kind of indicate how you could make it a heart practice, but nevertheless, That's what I'm going to speak about tonight, so you can take it home with you. So I want to speak about how how to and the value of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and how to make the chanting of them more than just a kind of a meaningless ritual or a fun way to wake up in the morning. So to take refuge in the Buddha, it's helpful to remember, to to know, that the Buddha means one who is awake. Literally, figuratively. I mean, really, awake to the way of the world, the way things are, his own life. And if we understand the journey that the Bodhisattva took to become a Buddha, we can't help but recognize that that's a profound achievement, accomplishment. An ascetic hundreds of lifetimes and eons ago saw a former Buddha, made a vow to become a Buddha, had that vow recognized, and for hundreds of lifetimes this stream of consciousness took birth in all the different realms all the different kinds of experiences that you could possibly have in order to purify his mind, to perfect the wholesome qualities of the mind so that they became the default setting of the mind. Generosity, loving-kindness, equanimity, understanding, renunciation, resolve, determination, uh, energy, 
patience, truthfulness, and the last one. Think what it would take for you to have so developed your heart and mind that these qualities of mind were the first response of the heart in any in every situation of life. That's that's an unbelievable accomplishment to be able to 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 not make it a practice, but to have it be the automatic response. So we can see that the the fact of becoming a Buddha is really significant. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, what is it that we're taking refuge in, really? Because to take refuge means to feel safe, to have a sense of security, to be protected. So to take refuge in the Buddha, we could say it's to take refuge in the accomplishment of the historical person, the historical human being. And just to know that someone, a human being, just like us, was able to do this, purify the heart and mind uh, to such a degree and to be such a force of wisdom and compassion in the world that 2,500 years later, millions of people are still practicing what he taught. Well, that's, that's some human being. That's a pretty... ennobling practice to take a refuge in someone who was so committed, so resolved, so wise, so loving, so compassionate. And so there's that much of taking refuge. Well, it's like relying on a really good teacher, someone that you know, almost that you know personally, to guide your life, to guide your practice, to guide your understanding, the unfolding of your heart. So there's that piece of it. But because the Buddha is no longer walking the face of the earth, it's a little bit remote, it's just an idea really, what we can also take refuge in is the potential within our own mind to awaken because we all have and we've all seen and we've all displayed and sometimes practiced all of those qualities of heart that the Buddha perfected. Practicing generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, resolve, telling the truth. We, we have that potential within us. We have some baseline uh, degree of them already and yet, we also see that we have room for improvement. But still, we have the potential. It's not foreign. It's not so exotic, esoteric, or culturally indecipherable that we, we can't recognize it. We can see within ourselves. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we could say, we also are aspiring to f- take refuge in our own potential to awaken. Maybe we're not there yet. And so this gives us a cushion of 
well, safety, acceptance, acknowledgement that as we unfold on our path, there'll be there'll be times of success, if you will, of coming forth with these qualities of heart and mind. And there'll be other times when we fall short. Not to take that as a sign of defeat, or inability, or incompetence, but to take refuge in the potential, even if it is as yet unrealized. Because even on a retreat like this for nine days, we can see how careful practice and attention really does cultivate the heart. Noticeably, even in nine days. So just extrapolate that to the rest of your life with some degree of continuity and sincerity, and we can see there's going to be some changes in our life. And so we can take refuge in not only the historical Buddha, who showed us the possibility and the way, but also the potential within our own heart and mind to do the same, even if not yet perfected. The amazing thing about the Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, I should say, is that he realized the truth. He developed these qualities of heart to a perfection without guidance. He looked at his own mind and eventually came to understand everything that we're hearing of his teachings and trying to realize ourselves. Well, even with all of the guidance that he offered and all of the commentaries of 25 centuries of monks and nuns and lay people and contemporary teachers that also try to help us understand what it is we're doing and why, even with all that, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty challenging. And here's someone, the Buddha, who did it alone, without instruction, without a Buddha to show him the way. Hmm. Okay, that's pretty amazing. But what's further amazing is that once having freed his heart from suffering and the causes of suffering, he was considering what to do with the rest of his life. And he thought, probably quite wisely, why don't I just retreat into the mountains and live peacefully in the forest? In fact, he did think that. But he was prevailed upon by some beings who said, you know, there are, many, there are people on the face of the earth that could benefit from hearing your teaching. And so, upon considering the request, the Buddha chose to spend the next 45 years of his life sharing his understanding with monks and nuns and lay people and the whole, every class of society at that time. And if you you know any of the history of the Buddha, it was not a uh, stress-free gig. It it was, I mean, he had all kinds of detractors and problems and problem monks and accusations and he just had... Well, why would he choose to put up with all that, 45 years of 
running a community? I mean, hello, you know what it's like running a committee. <laughs> okay, so you've got this community of hundreds of monks and nuns and lay people out of compassion because you could see they're suffering and don't know the way to the end of suffering. And so out of compassion for their suffering, he endured the challenges, the tasks, the stress, whatever it is, of walking his talk among folks of his time. Compassion, that, that's a powerful motivator. And by all indications, he walked his talk. He didn't kind of say one thing and do it otherwise. He really lived with integrity. So when we hear these teachings, we can know the source of them and the purpose of them for ourselves. They're to help us understand suffering, the causes of suffering, and reach the end of suffering. And, in particular, emphasizing the possibility, the requirement, the, the challenge of living with integrity in order to do so. Not just to kind of make it a, something we mouth as, oh, I'm a Buddhist, you know, nominally, <laughs> but I don't do anything about it. But really to become a Buddha as much as possible to awaken to the truth that the Buddha did. That's When you have a teacher that offers from that place caring for your suffering and the end of suffering and they walk their talk, it really is inspiring. You know, whether it's a monk or nun or whoever it is, it really asks a lot of us to step up our commitment, our effort, our understanding, and to realize as much as we can, uh, practice, as we, practice as well as we can, to realize as much as we can in this lifetime. It took a lot of integrity and fearlessness for the Buddha to walk his talk in that way. And if we too aspire to really find a refuge in our own ability to awaken, it will require, demand, that we also live with integrity and fearlessness. So you can see that taking refuge in the Buddha is not just a kind of an abdication of responsibility and just say, hey, you're my refuge, do your job. It's not that at all. It's more a commitment in our own heart to emulate, to practice, to become, to resonate with the teachings of the Buddha. So to take refuge in the Dharma has a few different areas, touches a few different areas of our practice. The first is to understand that the Dharma is the way things are, the way things lawfully unfold throughout the universe due to cause and effect. 
It is no accident that we're here today listening and practicing the Dharma. It's because of causes and conditions that were set in place, not just, you know, last Friday when we started the retreat, but at least as long ago as the enlightenment of the Buddha. Because without the Buddha doing his job, we wouldn't be here doing this job. So the causes and conditions that have brought this time of our practice together is vast, infinite, cannot be figured out. But it's no accident. Even if we don't understand the fullness of causes and conditions, we can see it, we can get a sense of it, we can, we can discover it, really, in our own practice. A second meaning of the word, the Dharma, is that it is the teachings of the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha are called the Dharma. And because the Dharma means the truth, for the way things are, and the teachings of the Buddha are called the Dharma, they're called the Dharma because the Buddha's teachings point to the way things are. Point to the truth. It's not that the Buddha was some kind of great thinker and thought out some fantastic theory of life and kind of made it up and and presented it. But rather that he looked at the way things are in his own mind, in his own body, in the ways of the world, and saw suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. He recognized the truth. What I've spoken about is the Four Noble Truths, or articulated his realization in the the discourse on the Four Noble Truths. Whether the Buddha exists or not, the truth is the truth. The way things are is the way things are. What makes it so valuable for us is that the Buddha recognized realized the truth, articulated it in a way, and it's been carried to us for 2,500 years. So we have these pointers to the truth in the form of the 40 volumes of the Pali Canon, the the discourses that the Buddha gave to hundreds, thousands of men, women, royalty, beggars, the the whole spectrum of society in this time and all the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns, and the lay people included. But there's just a vast volume of volumes of how to live in harmony with one another. And then there's the volumes of the Abhidhamma, which is the kind of enumeration of the Buddhist psychology, if you will. And these these teachings are the Dhamma, well, you know what? Most of us have not been exposed to the fullness of the Dharma. And we may not need to be. But we can rely on what we hear of the Dharma, practice as we do, and when we confirm any of it for ourselves, then we begin to see, oh, you know, the Buddha was right. Okay, I can confirm this much. And whatever else the Buddha said, we're more likely to give the benefit of the doubt 
to what the Buddha said because we've we've recognized, realized, understood, confirmed for ourselves already some of it. So whatever is not yet realized or confirmed in our own practice, we can use as a template for understanding. So we can hear the teachings even before we've realized them, maybe even before we believe them. It's like, well, you don't have to believe them. It's not a matter of dogma. It's a matter of hear these teachings, practice. See if your mind can uncover, discover, realize all that these teachings either are true for you or not. That's the invitation. Check it out for yourself. You know, it is not a matter of belief. As you know, you can believe anything you want, but when you start paying attention to your breath and your awareness and other experiences in the in the body and mind, it really doesn't matter what you believe. You know, it's like that's the work. The work is can you be aware? Can you understand what is going on in your own experience? And you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a a Jewish person, you can have any beliefs that you want. If you breathe, you can become aware, even if you don't breathe. Well, how could that happen? Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be the breath that you're aware of. But you know, it's, it's really non-sectarian, non-denominational. It's a very humanistic uh, practice. The Buddha's teachings point to the way things are, like the laws of biology point to the way things are in the biological world. Or the physical laws of the universe, you know, the laws of gravity and the laws that govern the unfolding of the seasons. This is just an articulation of the way things are. It's not some invention of Aristotle or you know, whoever those people are that articulated these truths. And so too with the Buddha. He looked at the mind, he looked at the heart, and he understood the laws governing the unfolding of the mind, of the heart. Most of us haven't looked that way. Western science hasn't looked that way. It's quite new and novel to us, really, and yet that's what we're doing. We're listening to the teachings of the Buddha, pointing to the laws governing the unfolding of the heart and mind, and we're checking it out. Practice awareness in this way, see the defilements or the torments in that way, work with them in so many ways, and you'll see the development of the mind unfold. Already, we know. There's something to it. There's some uh, logic, there's something to verify from our practice here. It was interesting that the Buddha had such a powerful mind. He did acknowledge at one time that there was no limit to what a Buddha could know with his mind. Think of that. No limit. Okay. So it is reported that one time he was walking through the forest, you know, with some of his monks. He reached down and picked up a handful of leaves, asked them, which do you think is more? The leaves in all the forest? or the leaves that I have in my hand. They being wise, having practiced for a long time, they said, there are more leaves in the forest than you have in your hand. And he said, that's true. And just so, what I know 
as a Buddha is like the leaves in the forest. What I've taught you is like the leaves in my hand. But that's all you need to know in order to free yourself from suffering. That's an important statement. When we look around our life at all the information that's available, I mean, you don't have... You can go online and look for anything you want. There's something about everything. But what of all that's available is that handful of that handful of information that is what you need in order to free yourself from suffering. Are we are we seeking that handful? Or are we seeking to acquire more knowledge than necessary? Because, as the Buddha acknowledged, it's endless. Endless. We could spend a long time acquiring and accumulating knowledge that has no useful purpose in freeing our heart from suffering. So we should look carefully at, well, what... Just, how, just what is needed, really, to understand suffering and the end of suffering. And this, the Buddha said, is what he taught. So the Dharma means the law of nature. Understanding the law of cause and effect. So when we take refuge in the Dharma... We're taking refuge in understanding that things don't unfold haphazardly. Our life and what happens to us is not a mistake, it's not an accident, it's not adventitious. It's understandable if we look carefully. It also means taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, like... This is what he said. This is enough. This is enough to free you from suffering. Well, maybe. But we have to find out for ourselves, don't we? We can take refuge in those teachings, but we have to apply them for ourselves and see whether it really works or not. The third meaning of the word dharma refers to experience. Every experience that we have. Every psychological, emotional, physical, material experience we have is called a dhamma. It's a dhamma. You know, sadness is a dhamma. Tingling in the hands is a dhamma. You know, thinking is a dhamma. They're all dhammas. So when we take refuge in the dhamma, we're aspiring to find a way to take refuge in this moment's experience. Okay. Now that means any moment's experience, every moment's experience, can be a place of refuge for us. But clearly we know that not every moment's experience is pleasant. It's not understandable sometimes. So the practice is to aspire to do that. To not think that it's some mistake, 
that something's wrong, that you're doing it wrong, but rather finding a way to understand the unfolding of conditions and seeing the lawfulness of it and being at ease with it. And so a lot of our practice is is just that, recognizing the present moment, the Dhamma, and if we have a reaction that is not one of refuge, then to look at that, to understand that. Until we can come to the place where every moment's experience is a place of being at ease, of feeling secure, safe, grounded, uh, whatever be having a refuge in this moment would entail. Clearly, we're going to have to understand the nature of everything we experience. And I spoke about the unique characteristic of different physical and mental states of mind, experiences in the body. But the other night I also spoke about the universal characteristics, that all that arises is impermanent. We have to come to that understanding. We have to see over and over again, this is the way it is. Everything that arises passes away and find refuge in that. Initially, we can feel very upset that things change. And so it takes some working through our confusion, our resistance, our attachments, our aversions, our fear to arrive at the skillful view, or the correct view, the right view, if you will, that indeed everything changes, and I can tolerate that. I can be with that. I can feel safe knowing that everything changes. That's, that's, that is what we're aspiring to when we say, I take refuge in the Dharma. And clearly, we have some work to do. But, We've also seen how possible it is, actually, to work through challenging relationships to experience and find a place of ease, greater ease. You know, we can all tolerate a little more pain or a little more discomfort, a little more wackiness in the mind than at the beginning of the retreat. Keep doing it. (laughs) Keep working in this way and it'll all become knowable and acceptable and a place of being at ease. Not only is everything impermanent, everything has the characteristic of either being painful. Well, we've learned how to deal with pain to a degree, keep at it, or unstable and therefore a place of insecurity. How can we ever feel safe and secure in an experience that is unstable and ever-changing. It's the knowledge that everything is changing, everything is unstable. Don't look for it to provide that satisfaction, that kind of eternal, drop it here, hang out forever. That's not going to work. And when we come to that understanding, then indeed we can find a refuge in the fact that everything is changing It's always unstable. The ground is always shifting out from underneath us. And that's okay. There's a way to be at ease with that. And we're we're 
we've undertaken the practice to discover that, and even in this retreat, we can begin to see. We can get glimpses of how that's possible. Also, that third understanding of all, that third characteristic of all experience is that it arises due to causes and conditions. When those conditions change, it falls apart. It is not under our immediate control. We cannot make it all happen. We cannot stop it from happening. All we can do is see that it's happening. And it comes into being, everything comes into being due to causes and conditions, and and they all leave. And while that is also very destabilizing and to be, can often feel very vulnerable and like we're not really in control of our life, it feels pretty unsafe at times. And yet again, there's a way to come to that experience, come to that knowledge, and accept it, that oh, this is the way it is, everywhere, all the time. And the knowledge of the anatta characteristic, or the selfless characteristic, or the ephemeral nature, the evanescent nature of experience, can be a place of refuge. And we will find that if we continue to practice in this way. One of my favorite poets, Galway Canal, wrote this prayer about taking refuge in the Dharma. Whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want, only that, but that. Whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want, only that, but that. That's like an ultimate statement in the way it is, is good enough, and it's all I need, or want. Interesting. To, be, to want only what is expresses an ability to live at ease and in harmony with anything. Right? If that's what you could really want. Something to aspire to, really. So we have refuge in the Buddha, the real Buddha, the historical Buddha, the potential within, taking refuge in the Dharmas, taking refuge in the law, the universal laws of nature and of the mind, uh, taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, taking refuge in every moment's experience. Of course, we recognize that these are these are really an aspiration. It's, we we can't do it yet. Some some we can, but we're aspiring to do that. And then the third refuge is to take refuge in the sangha. That means to take refuge in the community of beings practicing this path of awakening. Well, when I first heard taking refuge in the Sangha, I thought it meant, i got to take refuge in these people that I'm practicing with? I don't know about that. It's like, I'm not going to surrender my control to them. And, you know, I kind of had this New, New England Yankee mentality of, you know, radical autonomy... 
uh, and self-reliance, go it alone. And that just didn't square with taking refuge in the Sangha. So I didn't bother with this refuge for a long time. <laughs> I figured I'm on my own. But, you know, the, Buddha, the, 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 the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, said to the Buddha one time, you know, I think, you know, living the holy life like this and developing the mind and freeing the mind, it's like 50% of it is having good spiritual friends. And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, no, no, don't say that. It's 100%. 100% of our ability to walk this path and develop it is because of good spiritual friends. And you know what? I believe it. Now I know. Just think, if you had to do just this week's work on your mind that you've done without any guidance and without anybody around for support or even seeing anybody else doing it, could you have made it? I don't know. I couldn't. And that's just that's just too hard. And without the, the assurance, without the instruction, without the confidence, without the support, without the you know, the shared struggles that we all have with this practice. And so I am really grateful that you're all here because <laughs> it's hard work. So taking refuge in the Sangha really is very practical. It's very it's 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 pretty urgent. And we all have our own, you know, resistance to surrendering to the way things are in groups. We all have our own authority issues. Uh, you know, the rules are good for them, but not for me sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, there's reasons to be suspect of taking refuge in the Sangha. But the Sangha is not just limited to the 46 of us. It really is a much broader community on the face of the earth now, and it extends back 25 centuries to the time of the Buddha. And not only that, sometimes it refers specifically to those beings who have realized, to some degree, what the Buddha realized, those who've confirmed the Buddha's teaching through their own practice, and have awoken. These teachings didn't get here in a book. They got here in live, living beings' hearts that they shared with the next generation, if you will. So, I mentioned the call to breakfast you know, that the nuns would all, I mean, the women would all start chanting, the men would all chant, and when the breakfast gong rang, they would, you know, strike this log against another big hollow log, and it's a big booming noise, and you'd know, okay, breakfast is about to be served. So at the time of the festival, at the center, all of these elder monks the senior-most monks in the tradition throughout Burma, and, you know, six or eight hundred of them probably, a lot, they would all gather. Now, when monks do anything together, they always go in order of seniority. That means the one who's been the monk the longest goes first. 
So one of the monks who runs, who would help administer things at the meditation center, he would step out into the roadway between where I was and the dining hall, and he would say, 65 wasa. That means any monk here who's been a monk for 65 years, and you've got to be 20 to become a monk, that means he's 85, at least. Any monk who's 85 years old, having been a monk for 65 years, can go to breakfast. <laughs> so, okay, there might be one. Come out from beside the building with his cane or a helper, to come, and he'd start up the hill. And he'd say, 64 wasa. <laughs> Any monk who's been a monk for 64 years can, can go. Well, it just keeps going down the line, you know, one at a time each year down the line. Well, when they get down to, you know, 35 wasa, well, they're only 55 years old. There's, there was a lot of monks. It'd be 20 at a time stepping out into the road, into the road on the path and following the, the elders as they went up the hill. It's not a long hill, but it's, it takes a while to get there. So it took a while to get through 65, <laughs> 65 wasa. So they kept going down the line and down to, you know, 20 wasa, 15 wasa, 10 wasa. It means monks who'd been monks for 10 years, they were at least 30 years old. And at this particular festival, they didn't let monks less than 10 wasa come because they just didn't have the room. But being a foreigner, they let me stay. And so when they got down to one wasa, two wasa, I, I could go. <laughs> I'd been a monk for a year or two, three but at that time, I was at the end of the line. I, that was the last one. And when I looked, when I would I'd step out and, and I'd look, and there's this line of monks heading up over the hill into the, into the fog, really, and the darkness around the, around the meditation hall into the dining room, you know, walking along. Very solemn, and really. It's pretty, pretty powerful to kind of be in that, ambient because there's just thousands of devotees around watching you know just kind of sharing the the, the ceremony I'd step out and I'd start walking up and I'd look up this line of monks and from what I could see and it goes around the building around the women's meditation hall into the dining room and I would think somewhere up at the head of that line is the Buddha and the Buddha realized the truth and he turned to uh, Ananda and Mogalana and Sariputta and said hey you know if you can see things the way I do check it out or something like that and so they practiced they realized the truth and they shared with others and that truth that way of transmitting the truth the teachings the realization of the Buddha has been carried on for 2,500 years. And it came to Mahasi Sayadaw, who practiced, realized the truth, and said to Upandita, you know, if you can practice like this and see things like that, you too can realize the truth. Upandita practiced, he also got it. Upandita turned to me and said, hey, you know, if you can practice like this and realize the truth, um, you'll have something of value. Well, I practice. And to whatever extent I have realized something, I used to think I was at the end of the line. But I'm not at the end of the line anymore. Because mm -hmm. I have offered you whatever I've known. Mm 
And you've got the teachings. And it's your turn to practice, to realize for yourself. There are untold numbers of beings yet to be born who will want these teachings in the future. It's up to us to preserve these teachings through our own practice, to realize for ourselves and to pass them on so that children, our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whatever, for the next 2,500 years, will have these teachings. If we fail to hear the teachings, to practice the teachings, and to realize the teachings, the articulation and the realization of the truth stops here. When I realized that, it really awoke in me an urgent aspiration to practice, to realize, and to really devote my life to doing what I could to see that the teachings of the Buddha remained alive, living, a living tradition, not kind of a good idea in the past, but something available for us to really see and understand the suffering and the causes of suffering and to let go, to stop suffering. So when I take refuge in the Sangha, I'm taking refuge in the Sangha from the Buddha down to myself and all of you. There's no reason we can't do it. Nothing to prevent us except our own Lack of faith, maybe. We have the potential. We've seen, we know the potential. We've even seen the growth in the manifestation of that potential even in a nine day retreat. But it does take commitment. It does take being really clear what our aspiration is and really clear what the, the work to be done is. And it can be done. The truth is not that far away. We can realize the truth like the Buddha did. So that's what that's what we're recognizing when we take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha each morning and kind of reaffirming our uh, aspiration, our aspirations, and our commitment to realize for ourselves and for the benefit of all other beings, really, and to help all beings realize the end of suffering. So taking the refuges, chanting the refuges and precepts in the morning is not a meaningless ritual. It can be. It can be just a mumbo-jumbo. Or it can be a profoundly moving uh, inspiration to practice that day or this lifetime. Stonehouse was a Chinese hermit monk lived in the 1300s on Red Curtain Mountain. And interestingly, a little personal history of of, uh, Stonehouse, he was a 
a monk, a Buddhist monk in China, and he was pretty astute meditator. So at some point in his life, he was promoted to the abbot of a certain monastery. And he was, you know, he was the leader. And after a few years, he realized he didn't want to be, he did not want to be the abbot of that monastery. It's just too much, well, administrative headaches. So he, he gave it up. And he retired to this red curtain mountain and lived with just a couple of other monks in this shack. And he talks, he writes about a certain well out back and a certain view of the mountain and whatnot. Well, Red Pine, who is a translator that lives here in the Northwest, translated these poems, took the description of this hermitage where Stonehouse lived in the 1300s, went to China and found it. It's still there. This place where Stonehouse lived. And the spring is there and the view is there. The monks aren't there. Stonehouse wrote you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice if water drips long enough even rock wears through it's not true that thick skulls can't be pierced (laughs) people just imagine their minds are hard you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.